This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to the 150th episode of Self Work. I cannot believe we're there. I actually looked it up, it's a sesquicentennial event. <laughs> But happy 150th episode. I couldn't find any traditional ways of celebrating 150, so a few sound effects will have to do. And it's all about you. So thank you for being here. And if you've listened to all 150, just, just wow. Whatever your native language, thank you. This past week in my Facebook closed group, someone posted a graphic where the writer asked, if I inflict pain on myself, isn't it just as valid? It was and is an interesting question. Since this is the last of the series on aspects of depression, I began wondering what might be the common thread in behaviors that are considered ways to escape pain. Depression is innately painful. It's lonely. It's dark. Sometimes you lose hope that you can find your way out. So, some turn to self-destructive behaviors to gain some form of perceived control or escape. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Very diverse self-destructive behaviors. Not very celebratory, I guess, (laughs) but I think very important. I'll offer stories from my own patients and how they began to change their thinking about the escape routes they'd come to count on and to learn the skill of self-soothing that so many struggle to adopt, because that's the answer to self-destructiveness, is self-soothing. And I'll offer the question that I've used to help people begin to understand what function these behaviors are serving. This will become more clear, I hope, when we get to the examples. The listener email is from someone who believes her husband experiences perfectly hidden depression, but since he's highly perfectionistic, how could she approach him with a concern about it that he could perhaps tolerate? Since she used the new speak pipe feature, and you can too, you'll hear her question and her own words. Love the new speak pipe feature, and if more of you want to use it, that would delight me. So today we're going to be talking about self-destructiveness, but also self-soothing. Someone asked the question, if I hurt myself, is the pain I feel from that as valid as other kinds of pain? So, that got me thinking about self-destructiveness. I've certainly heard and seen a lot of it. I've been self-destructive myself. I'm not sure I could fit all the ways that people hurt themselves into a podcast. There are too many of them. Some people who frequently do self-destructive things have psychological issues tied to impulsivity, mood dysregulation, meaning cyclical mood swings that are destabilizing. We talked about that in the last episode. Trauma, neglect, addiction issues, or abuse in their past or their present. They were or are hurt, so they often cannot see that their behaviors will negatively impact their own lives as well as others. They don't see them as self-destructive. Today, we're going to focus on the behaviors that help you escape or avoid emotional pain that are typically kept secret. Now, this isn't a completely thorough list. There are many things that can serve as a secret escape. 
Addiction such as alcohol, gambling, watching porn, drugs, or sex certainly makes that list. And video gaming is one that I know is being considered for inclusion in the next version of the Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual as a disorder. Any of these can certainly wreck lives and relationships and could be talked about in their own podcast on addictions. Today, I'll stick to self-destructive tendencies that aren't necessarily to the point of addictiveness, although they all have an addictive quality. And I'll use my own patient stories to illustrate what someone can do when they want to learn to self-soothe rather than escape through a behavior that ultimately leads to more shame. Here's what we're going to talk about. Spending or shopping, binging and purging, food restriction and dieting, cutting, affairs, and rigid compartmentalization. If you find yourself in any one of those, you may want to keep tuned in or in any one you love. Let's look at them one at a time. First, spending and shopping. Overspending and overshopping is tied into bipolar disorder and is even part of its symptom criteria because the person is manic and isn't acting rationally. Again, we talked about that in the last episode. It can sometimes be a passive-aggressive choice when a partner is angry and instead of being able to talk things out, will spend money, even if there's plenty, out of unspoken anger, or if there's not plenty. It's acting out that anger, but doing it passively, rather than trying a more proactive strategy. But it also doesn't necessarily have to be attached or connected with bipolar disorder. For some, overspending and overshopping is a way of trying secretly to achieve a felt sense of control when they're not feeling in control of their emotional pain. Here's an example. I worked with a woman several years ago who told me her married life was fantastic, especially sexually. They were into each other, and it was one of the best things about their relationship. They could always connect lovingly and passionately with sex. She had the interesting ritual, however, of ordering lots of things online that would be delivered to her home, but she might or might not even open the packages. She might or might not try anything on. She'd simply return what she had bought. She always bought at stores that didn't charge for returns and would actually buy a few things here and there so the stores might not catch on. I asked her to try and see what would happen if the next time she felt compelled to do this ritual that she asked herself one question. What do I believe buying one more thing and sending it back is doing for me that I think I can't do for myself? She hadn't a clue at first, but said she'd try. The next session when she came back, She wasn't a crier, but she looked very serious. I figured it out. When the packages came, I felt for a brief instant like I was important, that I had asked and received. I felt empowered. I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't mind sending them back because that was my decision as well and my decision only, and that felt empowering too. When I didn't do it, I was seized with this sense of being out of control and unhappy. What she learned, and I learned, was that the ritual of buying and sending back was her way of soothing feeling out of control. She first talked about how she believed that was due to her own history of extreme emotional and sexual abuse from her father. But the longer we worked together, I heard a fuller story. Do you remember what she talked about between her and her husband, that they had this wonderful sexual relationship? Actually, she was highly demeaned sexually by her husband. Not only did he demean her there, but he controlled what she wore from her lipstick to her blouses to her lingerie. 
she came in over several years' period of time, and she would come in for five or six sessions, and then she would leave and come back 10 or 12 months later. But she eventually began recognizing this behavior as demeaning, and she no longer needed her ritual. This was only one of the aspects of this case, but I thought it was a very interesting example of how shopping and spending can act as a way for you to feel in control. And the question I asked We'll continue to look at what do I believe my self-destructive behavior does for me that I don't think I can do for myself. We'll get back to that. Now let's talk about binging and purging. Of course, this behavior is an eating disorder itself. But today I want to look at it in the way that it functions for the person who is compelled to do it. I've had many people, mostly women, tell me that when they binge, which is eating large amounts of food in secret, they have almost a dissociative experience. You have no sense of time. You're completely out of touch with messages from your body. Binging in itself can serve as an escape from loneliness or some kind of painful reality. And then you purge, if you do, and you relieve the shame you feel from the binge. Again, this is sort of a a two-headed monster. You binge, and that's self-destructive, and then you purge, and that's also self-destructive. Or the reason for purging could be more unique to you. That's why the question is important. One woman told me, when I'm making myself throw up, I imagine what my mother would feel if she could see me. I'd be mad over something she'd said at lunch, and I'd punish her by going into the restaurant bathroom and doing something that would make her sad if she knew. I hope you can hear the tangle of her reasoning. She was angry, but couldn't or didn't know how to express it. So she turned on the escape valve that she knew, and she made herself throw up. So again, the question, what are you telling yourself this choice will do that you can't do for yourself? That could be about binging, that could be about purging, or that could be about that entire cycle. So in therapy, We went on to talk about how she could be angry and communicate that assertively. And her purging began to decrease. Now let's talk about food restriction or dieting or compulsive exercise. Again, anorexia or food restriction, severe food restriction, is in itself a behavioral disorder. And it's almost always a secret behavior, although the more severe it is, the less it can be maintained secretly. The weight loss is too noticeable. But really, anorexia is a way of trying to escape from or cope with low self-esteem and lack of perceived control. It's not really about food, nor is dieting, nor is compulsive exercise. Perhaps you are or know someone who diets all the time or is compelled to do the latest fitness regimen. What do you think that this behavior is offering you that you can't do for yourself or for them? In many cases, the zealous results prove to someone that they are worthy, that they can do an hour-long hot yoga session or keep up with much younger people in CrossFit or get their body fat down to some weirdly low number, and that becomes what makes them special. Now, I'm not knocking exercise or fitness or healthy eating, but when you're compelled to do it, when its importance turns addictive and absolutely necessary, there's something wrong. Our culture doesn't help. Because often you get accolades from others. Wow, you look great. When actually maybe your clothes look good on your body because we're trained to appreciate that kind of look in magazines. The folds fold where they're supposed to fold. 
But if you try to answer this question, what does the number you weigh or the pounds you can lift do for you that you're struggling to do for yourself? What's the answer? Often with this kind of food restriction or dieting or compulsive exercise, people will go on the defense. There's nothing wrong. I simply feel better. But there is something wrong because it's no longer a choice. It's become a must-do. And the must-do of it is where the self-destructiveness comes in. Now let's talk about cutting. This behavior is associated with borderline personality disorder. And often people with borderline traits may not have just one way of self-punishment or ways to irrationally relieve their self-loathing. You can hit yourself, wash your hands in water that's far too hot. You can burn yourself with cigarettes or in the old days, cigarette lighters that were in cars. Cutting's link to abuse is strong, but that's not always the case because cutting has also become a trend in the teenage world. They hear about someone doing it and so they try it for themselves. But cutting at its worst can leave severe scarring physically, but also emotionally. It's generally not considered a suicidal gesture unless it's deep and near an actual vein. That is definitely cause for concern and immediate action. But cutting is also a way for those whose pain seems unmanageable to achieve one of two things that have been described to me. First, the person cutting feels the physical pain of the cutting, which makes them feel better or acts to help dissociate them from their emotional pain. Or two, the person actually dissociates from all of it and doesn't feel any physical pain, but gets relief from seeing their blood come to the surface. Either one of these act as a release. Whether they don't feel the physical pain, but they get a release from seeing their blood come to the surface, or they do feel the physical pain, and that somehow distracts them from their emotional pain. Both of these are hard to understand. Cutting is usually hidden so legs are a frequent target. So you know there's shame in doing it, and it can only add to inner turmoil. Cutting can go and come, but once it begins, it tends to stick around as an option when things get out of hand, and again, you're struggling to find a way to soothe yourself. I've had many patients who physically abuse themselves over the years through cutting or burning or hitting, but one comes to mind. Let's call her Kate. She was highly perfectionistic and had OCD as well. This led to a lifestyle which was strictly governed by a cleaning calendar that had to be followed every week to the letter. As we began to try to loosen that schedule up very slowly, Kate would seem to be doing okay. But there would be a look on her face, and she was a terrible liar even by omission. With some coaxing, she'd say, Well, I didn't clean as much. I actually took some time to read a book. But my head happened to hit the metal clothes rack in my closet when I went back to straighten up. I'd say, your head happened to hit? What? Yes, she said, I didn't see the bar. This kind of dance around self-harm is very typical because, again, the person is not seeing it as self-harm or self-destructiveness. They're also ashamed, and they want to tell you so that you can help. Let's ask the question, what did the behavior give her that she could not give herself? It sounds to me like she couldn't give herself permission to relax without shame. In her distorted mind, she needed to punish herself, to release her shame through hitting her head. The behavior was functioning as a way for her to soothe herself while also giving her the message that she'd done something wrong. You can see the complexity of the problem. Just FYI, 
Kate had been sexually molested by a sibling for years, had told her family as an adult, and nothing had changed. They didn't say they believed her or didn't. Just nothing happened. So self-harm can be complex, and it also can be tricky if you don't ask the right questions. Now let's talk about affairs. I almost didn't include this one because affairs can be triggered by many things. But there's one point about having an affair where I think it fits in the category of secret behaviors that soothe you because you can't soothe yourself. Often you see the person you're having the affair with as offering something to you, a lifestyle, a status, a feeling of being young or good-looking, a way of being that you've not been able to create yourself. And you convince yourself that only through your relationship with them can you have whatever that is in your life. You don't ask yourself, what do they offer that I believe I can't give to myself or create in myself? In your fantasy, you share in that way of being only with them. There's no reality. You don't hear them in the bathroom when they have diarrhea or watch them floss their teeth. It's secret and exciting, and it can feel empowering and a huge screw you to your partner who hasn't a clue. So maybe you don't know how to communicate your anger or disappointment or boredom or whatever in your marriage, so you seek a fantasy relationship. Maybe you like the status quo and don't want to change things, so you have a secret life, but it will ultimately cause chaos if it's not already. So again, if you can figure out what the affair is doing for you that you don't think you can do for yourself, that maybe there's a clue there and you can try to learn what that is and put it to action in your life. The last one is rigid compartmentalization. Now, we've talked about this as a definite trait of perfectly hidden depression and likely all forms of perfectionism, but it also can be viewed as a secret escape that protects you from what you fear, feeling pain. What is rigid compartmentalization? It's when, either consciously or unconsciously, you push emotional or psychological pain or trauma away from your conscious thought and cram it way back into the recesses of your mind. You stick it in a compartment and never connect with that pain again, if you ever did. Why I say this can be conscious or unconscious is that you can know you're doing this or it can be such an old strategy created when you were quite young child that you don't have a clue that's what you're doing. You simply recognize yourself as not having much of a reaction to pain. You know, I don't do tears, or I've got better things to think about. You stay in your head, and you stay very out of any connection with vulnerability. It can parade itself like strength, but the tree that can't bend in the wind risks breaking when the wind gets strong enough. Here's an example from, again, my patient's. Janine came in saying that she really disliked sex and only put up with it as a duty to her husband. This was only one of the things she talked about, but it was notable. That wasn't the focus of treatment, however, so it was something I put aside on the back burner, so to speak. She was worried about some sadness she was beginning to notice that, quote-unquote, came out of nowhere. I noticed that she was a very driven person, funny, extremely likable, and actually loved her husband quite a lot. They'd been trying for years to have children, but she had had multiple miscarriages over a very long period of time. She showed no emotion as she told me the story of miscarriage after miscarriage, smiling and saying that she'd lived through it, and now that they'd adopted, everything was wonderful. I knew I had someone who would identify with perfectly hidden depression if I could work with her carefully enough. I'm glad to say 
that I helped her out of her smiling shell. She did wonderful work and was able to grieve her infertile journey and have compassion for herself. She was supposed to be all over it when she adopted, and the sadness that was seeping through the cracks was her grief. As she realized through loving her adopted daughter, she was grieving all that she could have had, but that she missed with her unborn children. We finally got back to her sexual relationship, and there she rediscovered some very old feelings of being demeaned and sexually abused by an old boyfriend with whom she'd had a relationship for years. She'd never made the connection between her need for sexual control and the damage she'd experienced then. Perhaps one of her best aha moments came when she had a very vulnerable conversation with her husband about their intimacy. He'd never understood her pulling away from him, but now he could have compassion for her as she began to have compassion for herself. Maybe you need to look for ways in your own life that you're trying to escape emotional pain because you're too afraid to feel it, because you don't know how to soothe yourself. Let's touch for a moment on just what soothing techniques are. You self-soothe by being kind and compassionate toward yourself. You acknowledge pain from the past, just like you would for someone else. You journal. You learn to meditate. You can reach out to others that you trust. There may not be a lot of those people, but if you really think about it, There's usually at least one or two people you think, you know, I can trust them with who I really am. You can learn breathing techniques and recognize shame's voice when you hear it. You can risk feeling emotional pain in the moment, just one memory at a time, true. But you can go back and think, wow, that was really hard. You can go into therapy. You can exercise or do something physical that's not self-destructive with your anger. There are lots of ways to self-soothe. And when you practice these, it's not so scary to feel because you know you can handle it without becoming self-destructive. Our listener email for this 150th podcast is from a woman named Beth. I just was wondering, as the wife of, of a man who I really truly believe has perfectly hidden depression, um, how do I encourage him to start just considering the fact that he may have a type of depression, given the fact that he is a perfectionist and that outwardly everything has to be perfect? So if he were to admit or say out loud, yes, maybe it isn't perfect, maybe I am depressed, Maybe I am help would be, I'm not sure if he could actually do that. And I was wondering, how is there a way I can approach it? Is there a way to help him get through or over the perfectionism to at least contemplate that he might need some help? So she's hearing my answer for the first time today. I wrote her back and said, hey, I'm going to answer your question on episode 150. Beth, you're talking about the age-old question of leading a horse to water but having no control over the animal drinking. And in fact, this very question was why some of the publishers I talked to weren't interested in my book on Perfectly Hidden Depression. They didn't understand if someone was hiding, why would they ever buy a book that would seem like it was revealing who they were? So what did I do? 
I asked the people that had volunteered to talk privately with me about the hiding they had done for years. I asked people that question directly. Not only what made them open up to me, but two, why would they buy a book entitled Perfectly Hidden Depression? And this is what they said. Because the loneliness is practically unbearable. And if on one hand you acknowledge that I'm doing something perfectly, but you also sense something's not right, that it's such a relief that someone has figured me out that I'd find the perfect way to buy the book. I'd say it was for a friend, or I'd buy the ebook instead of the paperback. But I believe the answer for someone in Beth's shoes is to approach, not with the blatant, I think something's wrong with you, or even, I think you're depressed, but to say, hey, I read this and it made me think of you. You work so hard and you love me so well, or however you sincerely feel. And yet I've wondered if something else is going on, because I've also noticed that you, and again, this would be unique to you, but I noticed you didn't cry when your friend John died, or you're taking on so much responsibility, just more and more and more. And then show them the article or have them listen to the podcast on Perfectly Hidden Depression, maybe the one on the 10 shared traits. That seems to be one that really catches people's attention. And then back off. Because you have to let them simmer in the information. You have to let them decide, can I come forward? But you have both complimented them on what they give and at the same time stated your concern. What my interviewees convinced me was that if someone's pain was bad enough, they would respond. So know, Beth, that you are planting seeds. And then watch carefully and support whatever acceptance your husband can muster. Good luck to you. Your husband's a lucky man to have someone who sees his pain and actually wants to help him. I hope he realizes that and responds. My thanks to all of you for being here, whether you've listened to one episode or all 150. You do not know how much it means to me to hop onto iTunes or Podbean and see your comments, read your reviews, and listen to your constructive criticism. For example, I've tried to make the introduction much faster because I had some feedback from those of you who listened to a lot of episodes that it was too long. I appreciate that. I've never done a podcast before. So please leave me a review or a rating wherever you listen. And tell your friends about self-work. That's the best publicity I could get. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can join me at DrMargaretRutherford.com and subscribe there. That's a really easy way to get this podcast. You'll also get my weekly blog post and some information about what's going on, but not much really. I leave you alone. You can join me over on my closed group on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And please... Leave me a message on SpeakPipe so I can hear your voice. It always helps me to know how you're asking your question so I answer it the right way. My gratitude to you again for being here. Onward to episode 151. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.